Stephen. Wes, welcome to the podcast, man. How are you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate you. Yeah, always uh, trying to be inclusive, uh, but only to Asians. Uh, Wes, you're a big fantasy sports guy. Uh, what's going on in fantasy sports right now? Because I think if I have it correctly, because I play on Yahoo and they just shut down the season uh, just as the NBA did. And there's going to be no fantasy for this NBA bubble, right? Well, the Yahoo Cup is actually sending out emails again. So they're firing up a lot of the DFS stuff that's still up and running. So um, I don't actually know the answer uh, verbatim. I know season long is obviously done. But uh, DFS, it looks like they're still firing some stuff up. So you should keep an eye out for that. Like they have that free roll, the Yahoo Cup. How much are you missing fantasy sports? I mean, this is a gambling podcast we're on today. So to ask me how much am I missing gambling, obviously you already know the answer. I don't, I don't want to say it out loud. You know the answer. Yeah, so you're a big gambler. Uh, that's been established. That's like uh, one of three things that I know about you. Um, <laughs> what's, what's, what's your gambling history, man? Walk me through it. Like everybody has a gambling origin story and everybody has uh, games that they prefer. So l- let me hear about the gambling history of DF West. Well, um, you know, it's, fun. it's great that we're talking about rounders today. I mean, poker is pretty much... Um, yeah, Texas No Limit Hold'em is really where I started actually t- like doing it seriously in real life. Um, but even before that, man, it's just like playing random random games with family and friends, right? So like growing up, like Big Two, I think I played that pretty much all the time with friends and even family at home. Um, Mahjong obviously is one that you know we've talked about before, and I play that quite a bit now. Played that a little bit growing up, but um, nothing really crazy. In terms of actual transactional like money being passed around until Texas Hold'em started, how about you, man? Yeah, I think it was mahjong for me growing up. Uh, just because growing up in Hong Kong, um, I'm sure you know too. Like you're just around that all the time, right? Like you just can't escape it. Like whenever family get together or you have like big dinners at restaurants, um, they'll always block off the back, and there's already like four tables happening uh, by the time you get there. So I think my family was a pretty big gambling family like from my parents to my grandparents uh, was that like that for you like in terms of was it passed down to you or was it something that you picked up yourself um i mean i play like a lot of the games that i learned was from my parents so like like i think like big two as an example i think i knew how to play big two and like fully all the rules by like grade one so like, <laughs> yeah, that's like, pretty I, early. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. It's just like that's just the way it was. I remember that. Um, and same thing to your story. Like, I remember going to dim sum at like restaurants here in Toronto. Like, I grew up here, and you just hear the shuffling all the time when you walk in the door, right? And as a kid, you have really no idea what that is, but you you, you it's like synonymous with gambling and that sound, right? So as you got old, as I got older, you know, when my parents are playing in the basement while my brother and I are doing whatever. You know, you'd always go down. You just watch, right? You just kind of, and, you know, you kind of look up to your parents, obviously. So they're playing. You want to learn as well. And that's just kind of how it happened. Yeah, I will make the case that, honestly, I think Mahjong is the greatest game on earth. Oh, like, you know I love I've, it. You know me. Yeah, I, love, and, and love I, I know you're going to be an ally on this. But, like, I've thought about this, um, you know, for, like, five minutes. And, and, like, 
I really do think there's no better game than Mahjong. Like when it comes to just like the group dynamic, and it's such a great game for socializing. Uh, the strategy that is involved with it. Um, I think the tiles are beautiful. Um, you know, I love a good aesthetic uh, when when you're gambling. So I'm I'm making the case that Mahjong is the greatest game on earth. Yeah, man. Like I I think the social aspect is what's underrated. It's literally very fun to be able to just like interact with your friends, family, whoever whoever it is you're playing with. But the part about MJ I love the most is the um, the kind of grading scale for how um, difficult or how uh, the degree of difficulty to your hand, right? So like there's a million ways to win, but the challenge is really picking the risk reward between how difficult of a hand you want to try to put together, how beautiful of a hand you want to put together um, relative to what's going on at the rest of the table. Like that's the part of the game I absolutely love the most. There's so much like calculation of, oh, the guy on my left, he's he's putting together like a really, really big hand. I can potentially try to do the same thing, but I don't want to pay out just in case he gets there faster than me. Let me put together a really like cheap, shitty hand. And then that way, at least I'll win some money. I'll make sure I don't pay out to him who could be a huge threat. And so, I mean, you know, we've talked about the pay scale as well. You know, there's, you know, how many times do I joke about like scared money? Don't make money, right? So <laughs> yeah, for, for that, people that don't know, Wes's uh, catchphrase is scared money, don't make money exactly man so like an mj the same philosophy applies technically to any gambling game like you can be that guy that's always going for the home run plays and you'll get like an exponential payout or you know you can make the make the call like okay i better win some small ones here and there play a little bit defensively um and really kind of cater to what's going on at the table your other opponents right so that, that's that's why I love MJ. Like there's just so much thinking that goes into your opponents, how you know they traditionally play, and then um, changing your kind of your your hand, the degree of difficulty relative to what they're doing. Yeah, I think your like your mahjong playing style definitely reflects a bit your personality. But like you said too, like it, it sometimes depends on the tiles, right? Like you have to play the tiles that are given to you, and obviously the three people that you're playing with. I'm like. Unless I got like really good hands, like, you know, off the jump that I can build. I'm the guy who just goes for those quick, dirty wins, man. You're you're the worst, man. I hate playing with guys <laughs> like you. You're literally the worst. Because <laughs> I always because you're always in the middle of like constructing something really great. And by the time you finally have some stuff set up, it's over. <laughs> well, like and that's and that's part of it, too. Right. There's like a, and that's why I love the game, because there's like a certain part of the game where you try to conceal your strength as well. Right. Yeah. So like. I try to put together a big hand, but I don't want to give you the out to know that I got something big cooking. And it's this whole the whole mind game part of it is what I probably love the most. Break two is super interesting to me too, because I don't think I realized until like maybe I grew up a little bit that it was a very Asian game. Like I know like white people have like a variation. <laughs> I just I just thought everybody played the games that we do. Like, I just assume that everyone in the world goes to karaoke and just uh, rolls the dice. Um, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Okay. All <laughs> and right, I'm like, all oh, right. it's, it's just us? No, but, like, white people have a variation of big two, I want to say. Yeah, president. Because, you know, growing up, yeah, when I was around, like, kids, they would be like, oh, we play president and, like, these other names. And, like, I had no idea what that was uh, until I finally played with them once. And I was like, oh, this is just basically big two. Um, I'm so fascinated by how, like, big two became, like, the Chinese card game. 
Yeah, I actually don't. Do you know the origin? Because I don't. I have I'm... no idea. I, I'm pretty sure this would just be a quick uh, Google search. Uh, but sure. clearly, uh, uh, neither of us uh, have uh, the energy <laughs> to do that at the moment. No, but uh, so we'll just continue to speculate on it. But yeah. I, th- I just think it's fascinating that these games get passed down. Because like, if you ask me what the most Asian gambling game is, I mean, I guess I would say Mahjong. But like Big Two is like up there. No, I'd say both of them are. Like, yeah. I mean, Mahjong is obviously a little bit more iconic. Like, it's more, like, you know, you're using an actual, like, tiles, right? Like, it's completely, it's its complete own thing. Big two, you're using playing cards, which is pretty much universal. But, um, yeah, somehow those two, I would say, are stapled as, like, the most kind of Asian kind of gambling games that you have out there. Yeah, and it's cool because, uh, like, my seven-year-old nephew, well, he's half Chinese, half Korean. Um, but you know, he's Chinese to me. Uh, so he, uh, like he started playing big two recently. Like, you know, you the go. last time I saw him before the pandemic, like he was, you know, all he wanted to do was play big two, uh, with me and my mom. And you said he's seven. Uh, yeah. Oh, so there you um, go. He's, he's right on pace, man. He's perfect. Yeah. Um, I should do a rounders pod with him in like two weeks. Um, I should make <laughs> him watch this movie. And just totally corrupt them. So outside of, you know, Mahjong, Big 2. So poker, you said you got into poker. When did you get into poker? And like, you know, how serious were you playing poker? Uh, I mean, the timing of it, I think, is the same as most people who ended up getting into it at, you know, like at the time Browners came out. And then that gap between that and Chris Moneymaker, World Series of Poker 2003. Um, but yeah, my origin story is actually not even myself. It's I had an older brother. And it was his crew that ended up uh, having these house games that they would invite me to. And I would just show up even though I was underage and I didn't have any friends of my own personally who was playing um, playing poker. But um, my brother was awesome. He'd bring me out all the time, the kind of big brother type vibes. And I'd show up at these games with, you know, kids who were in university. I was still in high school at that time. And that's where I kind of really learned the game, figured out how it all worked. And as around that time around that age it was starting to show up on tsn it was starting to show up on tv as well so um just i don't know with my background playing cards all that junk um it became a natural progression as just something i wanted to learn yeah you know i feel like uh, again i'm being very general because i love to generalize asians but i feel like every (laughs) asian got into poker during that poker boom period um, like coming off the 2003 World Series. Uh, same for me as well. Like I hadn't really played a lot of poker before. Um, you know, I would I would start going and, and playing at casinos and obviously home games. And you remember like poker was like the biggest thing, I feel like, for like a three-year period when they were just on TV all the time. Like oh, yeah. high-stakes poker, poker after dark, uh, the WPT. Uh, like all I wanted to consume was poker. I, I feel like poker was like my adult wrestling. Like, I grew up loving wrestling as a kid, and then as an adult, like, poker replaced wrestling for me. Yeah, like, that mid-2000s stretch, um, I feel like every single person, gambling addict or not, somehow learned how to play poker. And it's one, and I mean, I, I it makes sense, right? It's one of those things, you see it on TV, you know, like, you see it on TV, you see it, it's, you see it everywhere, and then you naturally just feel like, oh, what's that? Oh wow, my friend knows about it. Oh, that guy knows about it. Shit, I better, I better figure out what it is as well, right? And even if you weren't good at it, at least you wanted to have some baseline knowledge of how it's played. That way, you don't look like an idiot around your friends. And um, you know, 
then the NHL lockout happened. I think that was a really big thing during like uh, during that mid two thousands period for poker. Well, there's nothing on TV during that that period, right? So specific, especially in Canada, man, how they filled in a lot of those broadcasting hours. They put a lot of the World Series poker, World Poker Tour stuff on TV, and you had nothing else better to watch. Or maybe they didn't have another product, so that was what naturally filled in. And it was probably pretty cheap for them to do, I would guess, right? So it uh, worked out for the poker world. Like that, that's probably like the crate. That's probably like the golden age of Texas No Limit, no limit Hold'em, I would say. Yeah. No, that was great. Uh, did you have like a favorite uh, pro player at the time that you really liked? Oh, Hondo, yeah, absolutely. Phil Ivey. He's the man. Yeah. Every, everybody stands Phil Ivey, though. So you, uh, give, me, give me like a number two. Um, number two. Uh, Okay, so I mean, I'll, here's what I will say. You remember, you remember my name on Poker Stars is Kings Are Good. Yes. So we, so we had a Saturday, uh, you know, Poker Stars uh, game for a little bit uh, during the pandemic, uh, just amongst uh, media members and Wes. Wes, I think you won like six out of the nine tournaments. I want to <laughs> no, say, not nah, definitely um, did not. Definitely. Yeah, uh, estimated stats. Uh, I believe West won seventy five percent of the time. And yes, your handle was Kings are good. So tell me about this. No, that was based off of a quote of a guy called Marcel Lusk during that like TV period of poker, and he was just one of these guys that they ended up featuring. I think he was a Dutch. Yeah, he he's Dutch professional poker player, and he was just one of the first guys I remember on TV in like a live tournament make like an outrageously on point perfect call on what the other guy had and saved himself pretty much like uh, he saved himself in the tournament when he made that call he could have easily put all his chips in he had a i think it was like something like something like five it was like there's something weird like five three queen on the flop he had ace queen and then on the nose he called the other guy's pocket kings and he's like kings are good and he folded the hand um that was the inspiration for me to realize like holy crap how did he possibly make that read and the fold with it, right? Like that inspired me to really kind of figure out how to assess post-flop stuff a little bit more intelligently. And uh, yeah, that probably was the guy that really got me going uh, back in the day. Yeah. yeah, you know, the way I read is uh, always think that Wes uh, has the nuts. Good, and, good, uh, good. Never, That's what I want and, you to have, man. And never believe Will Lou. Um, every time, every time Willu like three bets me, I'm like, all right, call, call with bottom pair. And then he'll just like, and then he'll just suck out with a straight on the river. And I just have to go pace around in the kitchen and just go on tilt. No, I I think, I mean, that's such a great part of the game. There's so, I mean, there's so many reasons why I think poker got so popular. And I do think the personalities around that time, like you want to talk about Phil Ivey, um, I like the wild card guys, the guys who would just always have a meltdown, like Mike Matisau. Um. <laughs> oh yeah, the worst. They're just rage monsters, right, on the table, hundred percent. Yeah, man. Um, if if it's your game, man, you really embody that. Actually, your your tilt game is very strong, so it's good to see where your inspiration comes from. My tilt game is very strong, and I still have no idea how to play heads up. Um, I just get really intimidated in a heads up setting, but like besides the personalities, I think the other thing is just that like anybody can win a hand, right? Like oh, yeah. you can be the worst player. And you know, if the cards come out, right, uh, you can win a monster hand. And sometimes that's all it takes to draw you in. But like the kind of reading the cards and like understanding odds and like kind of the advanced 
stuff uh, was super interesting to me too. Like I remember picking up like Super System and like just reading through it and not to the point where like I was trying to become a professional poker player or anything, but like I just found the entire game to be so fascinating, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's it makes sense that poker ended up being on sports networks because even though there's no physical element to it, there's a lot of like it's it's the skill component of it. I think that really attracts people to playing poker, right? Like you literally can have the best players in the world constantly show up on the final tables because they can work their way through a lot of the variance uh, that comes with poker. And um, yeah, that's why I, made, I think like a movie like Rounders, like, uh, you know, all, all the things that you saw on TV, that's, that's why it made sense, right? Like that's the attraction to it. You can actually get better at a game like poker and in turn develop an edge if you can outplay the people who are on the table with you. Yeah. Do you prefer playing online uh, versus in person? Like, do you have a preference? A hundred percent. I uh, prefer in person. Yeah. What is it? Just because you can kind of like, like, you know, uh, read people and like have that kind of interaction aspect to it. Yeah. Like if you play online, it's pretty much all probability and math. Right, you don't really get a lot of extra body language information or things that you can derive. Like, you know, like any gambling game, like we, as you know, such an addict, you're always looking for an like an edge, right? You're looking for something that gives you a, a little bit of a better percentage than the people you're up against. Like in person, more often than not, if you're on a table where it's more of a casual player, they're not going to know how to kind of protect their own tells. Or they're not gonna they're not gonna be as comfortable in that spot versus hiding behind a screen. So in person, if you know what to look for, there are a lot of ways that you can kind of derive people's body language to interpret strength, weakness, like whether they're a nervous or whether they're feeling really confident. There's little subtle things like that you just never get online. Yeah, you're really sounding like Mike McDermott right now. No, dude, I'm just—they're just quotes, man. It's not my own words, you know. I'm just—I'm just literally <laughs> quoting lines from the movie right now. Yo, next time we play in person, I'm gonna bring a box of Oreos. Okay, deal. And I'm gonna try to mess you up with that. I'm um, gonna get one of those um, Asian—those Asian women visors over my face so that you can't see like anything <laughs> I'm doing. How's that? Well, we should be wearing those just for protection, anyways. That's um, true. They're ahead you know, of time. In this environment, um, why do you think Asian people love gambling so much? You know, you and I have talked about this before. I, I mean, I'm really not qualified to answer this question. Uh, I don't know why. Because you're because you're a gambling addict. No, man, I just don't know. Man. <laughs> I don't know the history of gambling on like Asian Chinese people in general. But um, you know what? The only thing that I can really like credit that to is I think um, just using my own personal examples. I like there's an element of like superstition and like fortune that I feel is just relative to chinese culture more than you know other cultures around the world like i don't want to speak for this is what i mean i don't want to speak for all the cultures around the world i don't know if like luck is a big part of their culture as well but i know for a fact uh amongst my own family and like the the extended family like that's a big part of like culture right wishing good superstition prosperity and all that and i would imagine that's got to have some connection to the many gambling addicts we see at falls view every week <laughs> yo shouts to falls view man um the other thing too that's fascinating to me about that is just because like i feel like asians have such an interesting relationship with money 
um yeah like yeah. just 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 because like i feel like a lot of us um you know are really protective especially the older generation and just like really cherish our money because um you know a lot of us come from maybe poor backgrounds and understand how hard it is to, to kind of make it day to day in this world but then at the same time we love to just throw our money away and like you know <laughs> spend 500 bucks splitting aces at the blackjack table oh, like it's word. such a contradiction to me yeah, man. I, I, I can't explain. Like, this, uh, this is what I mean. I can't explain it. I don't know. Like, I don't know why people are at the Baccarat table pretty much, like, in, <laughs> like, in, like, in the hundreds, just, like, all around one table watching a guy throw $10,000 on a Baccarat hand. I have no idea why they do that. I can't explain it. No, shout, shout out to Asians, man. Um, just Asians and gambling will be linked forever. So let's get into Rounders. So Rounders is the 1998 American drama film about the underground world of high stakes poker directed by John Dahl starring Matt Damon and Ed Norton. So John Dahl, the director. um, So there was an oral history about this movie on the ringer recently. And uh, the director of the movie uh, said, I'm not a card player, but I love sports movies. I read the script and I said, this is kind of like a sports movie, but it's with cards. I knew nothing about cards to me. Playing cards was getting a box of pizza, having some drinks and smoking cigars with my brother and his friends and losing 40 bucks playing <laughs> poker. The fact that there was this whole inside world, I found it really fascinating. Uh, when was the first time you watched Rounders, you think, Wes? Um, probably, like, I didn't watch it when it came out, that's for sure. Um, I probably ended up watching it, like, a few years later, before the Chris Moneymaker stuff happened. Uh, so maybe, like, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, maybe, like, a year or two before that. Um. It was one of those movies that as you started getting introduced, like you heard about poker. Oh, well, then you got to go watch this movie first. And I think that's how it ended up for me. Yeah, you know, I think I watched it probably during the poker boom um, that we talked about, like after 2003. And we were like a lot of people, um, you know, there was an L.A. Times review when the movie came out in 98. And the re- reviewer wrote, anyone who lacks a serious knowledge of poker is not going to be able to figure out what happens in several of the film's key hands which i guess technically is true um the movie ended up only grossing 22.9 million at the box office um, on a 13 million dollar budget so it was not a popular movie at all but it became this like cult classic later on first of all uh before we dive into like specific parts of the movie what are your thoughts on just this movie overall as a poker movie i i think justifiably so it's like it's like everybody's best kind of like staple poker movie it introduced it to the world right um i mean for me i've watched it i I don't know 10 15 times um i don't know how like it's kind of one of those movies now you just you just like watching certain scenes i don't know if that's how it is for you um like you you watch some of those like critical um, gambling scenes where they do it and like have uh, Matt Damon kind of do the voiceover explaining what's going on like I love hearing some of his opinions he has on what's happening at the table and especially when I was first learning the game I found those things so educational like the the whole fish quote about like if you're if you don't find the sucker in the first 30 minutes of the table you are the sucker like I lived by that for a very <laughs> long time like a very long time in my life, I like made sure the first 30 minutes, every table I was playing, I was like, find the sucker. Make sure there's at least one. And if there isn't, like get the F out. Do not sit at that table. You know what I mean? So like there's just stuff like that from the movie. As it's a it's a Hollywood movie, I get it, but there's legitimately some very educational things 
for a poker player they actually embed in it which i thought was like really nice yeah you know that first scene that you're talking about when he goes to kgb's underground poker game uh that's basically like a uh no limit hold'em like for dummies scene yeah because like 100%. you said, like uh, Mike McDermott, you know, played by Matt Damon, is basically just explaining the basic rules, which, you know, seems kind of jarring uh, watching that now because you just assume that everybody knows poker because poker is so mainstream. But definitely, like, I feel like in 98, this was uh, definitely something that needed to be explained. Uh, did you have a favorite character in this movie? Um, okay, so if you'd ask me that, this is actually like a really strange like, my answer to this is worse than everybody else's. Like, I actually really appreciated Abe in this movie. Mike's oh, right. Not... So he's yeah, the, judge. The, the, law, the law professor, judge. Yeah, guy, right? yeah. Martin Landau, who played this role. Um, I just, like, dude, I, I don't know why I liked him so much. I just feel like um, you watch, like Matt, like, Matt Damon. He's trying to, you know, live this double life. But he clearly can't get away from, like, the gambling, like, part of his... Of, his lifestyle and i just really liked the fact that he had this kind of one shining light mentor who even though you expect him to like just fully tell him like what the hell are you doing like you should you know you know better you have your so many other skills that you should be applying to your life blah, blah, blah. he was just so understanding and he was literally the guy who bailed him out at the end right um i just feel like uh you know especially in this pandemic, man, yo, we all need, we all need a guy like that in our life. You know what I mean? Somebody out there looking out for you. So um, I always, I just, I always thought he did a good job in the movie. And actually like, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say Abe as a favorite character in this, but he was no doubt my guy. No, I love it, man. It sounds like you're looking for a life coach. If if there's any life coaches out there, uh, make sure (laughs) you hit Wes up. You know, he's got a bankroll for that. I'm sure. Uh, You know, the funny thing with, these poker movies and you know i did a podcast about god of gamblers you know Mm -hmm. that's obviously an asian movie versus this one which was north american but like i feel like with every gambling movie i watch um i just want more poker or like more gambling it it always just feels like (laughs) uh, they'll have it at the beginning and then they'll have it obviously as like the climax at the end and i understand like if i just want to watch two hours of poker i can just pull up youtube but like I just always want like a little bit more gambling and, and less of that like real life stuff. Yeah, man, that's that's your gambling gene coming out of you, man. That's all it really is. <laughs> like I always come out of this, like I obviously enjoy this movie. Um, I think I've probably watched it maybe four or five times, you know, including this rewatch. But every time I'm just like, can we just get more gambling? Like I get that Mike is not getting along with his girlfriend mm-hmm. and, you know, she's not approving of him getting back into gambling but you know let's just uh let's just see the cards man uh let's just deal the cards (laughs) and see what's up uh spoken like a true divorce man um so let's go through some of the movies so you talked about um having favorite scenes um and obviously uh matt damon talking about how you know if you can't spot the sucker at the table in the first half hour then you're the sucker and that whole first scene when he plays uh, KGB and loses all his money, I think is a pretty iconic scene and we can get into that. But do you have another uh, kind of favorite scene in this movie? I mean, I think that first scene is probably the best. Like when you watch him hit rock bottom, I think that's probably what the appeal is of this movie, right? Like you see, you know, protagonist, super skilled, but you see him like end up at the absolute worst and watch the slow climb back up. I think that's what makes the movie work and probably makes it akin to other sports movies as well but speaking like a true dgen 
my favorite scene was when they all end up at the Taj, where all of the ringers from these underground games just show up to the same freaking table at the Taj. And, like, I've had that happen to me before. I'm like, what are you, like, why am I here? Like, I literally made the drive all the way out just so that I can actually take advantage of some tourists. And I'm literally sitting at a table of, like, seven other, like, pros I recognize and I've seen over and over again. I'm like, why did I waste all this time commuting? This is so dumb. So, oh yeah, um, this is when the Chesterfield Club people show up, right? Like, yeah, they're all exactly. There. Yeah, they're all there at the Taj. <laughs> Edward Norton, uh, well, Matt Damon, Edward Norton, they show up there as well. Um, you know, the the triumphant return of Mike McDermott after he breaks up with his girlfriend Joe in the movie. Yeah, that's a no. That's that's a really good scene, and it's funny because, like, I mean, I remember like there was a period of time when I used to play a lot of poker. Uh, at casinos at Port Perry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember all my games based on the NBA games that I missed while wow. I was playing poker. Wow. Okay. Like I specifically remember missing Derek Fisher's like 0.04 shot against the San Antonio Spurs in the playoffs because like I heard about it while I was at a poker table. Dude, that's so um, Asian of you. I know. <laughs> and I'm only bringing that up too because you mentioned like, uh, you know, all these sharks would just like show up and like hustle people. Um, like you go to one place long enough to play poker, whether it's like a home game, um, you know, or some of these I don't know underground games. I've obviously never been to one of these. Uh, and like at the casino, like it's actually kind of comforting to see like the same two three people who just like play poker for a living. Um, I think that's like for a while there that was such an aspirational lifestyle choice to me. I don't know about you. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I, I hate admitting it, but there's like a time in my life where I was like, oh, man, I think I can actually do this. Like, I think there's a legitimate chance I can like go pro. And um, I I definitely felt uh, very connected to Mike McDermott um, being, you know, like a business student going to university, but still having this like ridiculous gambling addiction that I thought I can actually pursue as like a full on pipe dream. Right. So I don't know if you ever had that, but I, no doubt, I'll admit it. Like, I definitely thought I was good enough. And uh, I'm glad I did not go down that path. Did you, like, try, though, like, seriously? Or did you just kind of dabble in it and then just kind of gave up on it? Um, Like, I thought about, you know, taking a lot of my, like, bankroll earnings and going down to Vegas uh, during that time. But uh, I just ended up sticking to cash games. I, I, I You know what? I, my real life, like, I ended up just being Kanish. Like I just, I just ended up grinding at like cash games in the casino, like week in, week out and just collecting whatever per hour rate I was collecting. And that was it, man. I just, I was happy with that. I didn't try to go anything further. The one, so the one non kind of degen part of me is that, you know, like Matt Damon's character, he puts all of his life savings on the line and he loses it. Right. I've never been anywhere close to that. Like, I, I never had that itch to, like, completely change my fortunes. I would always play amounts that were within my limits. Because, like, you you know this as well. The moment you start playing amounts where you're, like, nervous and fearful when you see it in the middle of the table, that completely deter like, it derails your ability to play the game properly. So I was never, I, I never got to amounts like that in my bankroll where I felt like there's like legitimate impact on my life. So um, if I ever actually went like full on and tried to go pro, it'd probably require that. And that's probably why I never even bothered just because that wasn't something I'd ever want to do or I never like seriously considered. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Like, like once those chips actually become like denominations and money to you, um, it just changes everything. Like if you sit down to play, like the chips have to be just chips. Yeah, hundred percent. You can't be you can't be like, oh, that's three hundred dollars. Yeah, I'm it's gotta raise be and <laughs> one red betting unit, <laughs> right? right. Uh, or like three, <laughs> or three stacks of high society. Oh, uh, yeah. I love the terms that came out of this because I think I realized later on that a lot of people that I played poker with would just use terms from this movie. Like I've never heard of, uh, you know, high society uh, representing like ten thousand dollars. Um, until this movie and i and i definitely specifically remember a lot of people uh using that term uh in conversations so this opening scene uh mike mcdermott uh takes his bankroll and goes up against kgb first of all kgb we'll talk about this later but kgb becomes like this really cartoonish character by the end yep. but at, at the very beginning he's actually just like this intimidating uh dude who runs this underground poker game and, you know, it's set up that he's a really good villain. So the first, um, the, the only big hand in this scene uh, is, you know, Mike gets ace nine suited, uh, ace nine of clubs. And so they're playing no limit hold'em, minimum buy-in, 25000 Uh Mike raises $500 pre-flop and KGB calls. So we know this later, um, you know, as the hand unfolds, but KGB has pocket aces. So I actually typed this hand into like a poker odds calculator. Um, so Mike is like 11% to win mm-hmm. pre-flop. Um, so he flops top two pair on the flop. It's ace, nine, five, uh, all spades. And Mike uh, over bets the pot. Uh, he bets $2,000. Uh, at this point, he's 0.1% to win because uh, KGB has a he set of dom- aces. Yeah, he's dominated. Yeah. And, you know, here KGB picks up the Oreo, splits it open and eats it. Uh, we realize later that him splitting it open and then actually eating it is a tell that he has a uh, made hand or a really good hand. Um, on the turn, uh, the nine of hearts. So uh, full house for Mike, but unfortunately he's drawing dead at this point. Uh, then on the river, three of spades. So there are four spades on board. They trash talk a little bit. Uh, Mike, so KGB bets 15,000 and Mike counts his chips. Uh, does a whole thing and goes all in for I believe thirty three thousand more, and uh, Mike is trash talking at this point, saying I don't think you have the spades, uh, making it sound like you know a flush would beat him. Uh, KGB does his whole you're right, I don't have the spades, and turns over pocket aces, and Mike loses all his money. Um, did this remind you of any big hand that you've lost in your life? <laughs> um, I don't. I'm, luckily, luckily, I don't have anything like that memorable that happened. I just remember like looking back at it now and thinking about during this rewatchable versus when I first watched the movie. When I first watched the movie, yeah, I was like, oh man, this guy's golden. He's got top two. Like he's there's no way he should be beat. But now that I've had like all the years of experience that I had, I look back at that scene. I'm like, yo. There's no reason for Mike to start thinking like so overconfidently on that flop. There's a lot of ways to lose on that flop. Like first of all, they're all spades. Easily, he could have had some garbage like suited connector or whatever and had a um had a flush already. And then the same thing is like he doesn't even have to have pocket aces. The guy could have had pocket fives. KGB could have had pocket fives and that still beat him. So, um his overconfidence there I think is a good cautionary tale like not go too crazy but um luckily for me i can't think of anything like too too crazy like that where the amount really hits but yeah of course we all have our own like crazy bad beat stories right yeah i do feel like 
he was uh, a little bit ambitious here, especially because, I mean, it's fine. You know, when you when you flop top two pair and, and you make your full house on the turn, you have to be feeling pretty good. And I don't think you, you, you should feel terrible getting your money in on that. But also, you're playing for your entire bankroll. And I'm going to need a stronger hand than that to, like, put all my money. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the bankroll stuff is always tough. Uh, I mean, to to... To Mike McDermott's credit, when the nine comes on the turn, okay, yeah, at that point, you should feel super strong. But, you know, off the flop, right? Like, he was already overbetting, what, like 2000 into a $500 pot, whatever it was. Like, that's a strange play. And like, it's a strange play, right, at that point. Um, but I get it. It's, it's a Hollywood movie, man. They got to make it dramatic. So, you know, I understand why the script was written that way. But in real life, I don't know how often that happens. No, it was definitely a perfect opening scene. I think especially for people watching at the time who was not familiar with poker, uh, that's like the exact hand to kind of draw people into the movie. So nine months later, uh, Mike is out the game. He's driving a truck. Um, You know, he's doing this internship, uh, you know, I think at the lawyer's office and like the lawyers and judges are playing a game and, you know, he doesn't play, but he shows up and like uh, reads all of their hands blind and like impresses them. Uh, and gets a summer job out of it. And this is where we meet his childhood friend, uh, played by Ed Norton, uh, mm-hmm. Lester Worm Murphy. Like uh, the first time we meet him, he's like hustling already in jail, uh, just running card games and winning cigarettes, uh, even though he's like legit <laughs> getting out of jail in 30 minutes. And you can tell for him, it's not about that because he like throws the cigarettes away uh, the minute he gets out. Uh, this man is just a pure hustler. Uh, my favorite detail about him is he has a literal ace of spades tattoo on his arm yep. Yep. Uh, to say that he has an ace up his sleeve. Uh, so this guy's basically a scammer. Um, how do we feel about Ed Norton's character? So from an acting standpoint, he is easily the MVP of this movie, in my opinion. Um, he is such a like dislikable character. And he like he really like you, you know what this is the same reason why I think you like uncut gems, I think you like <laughs> you like the stress right you like the stress of having like a bad influence hanging over the main character and like this guy is constantly you every scene he's in you're just like stop stop can you please just stop like screwing everything up and you watch like you watch the snowball build up right so as a character oh I absolutely hate him he's the worst. But as an actor, like Edward Norton nails it. He nails it. I think he's actually the key to the movie because if he didn't play his role as well, you just wouldn't feel that stress. The same uncut stress, uh, uncut gem stress. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, I love how you're psychoanalyzing my love for uncut gems. Uh, this wasn't in the script, all right, Wes. Uh, <laughs> this this is not a therapy session. No, if um. Honestly, if you like Uncut Gems, it's because you like toxic uh, masculinity and (laughs) self-destructive behavior. Uh, That is my review for Uncut Gems. No, I think Ed Norton is really good in this movie. And you need that worm character, I feel like, to play off Mike McDermott, who is really trying to like play it straight, right? Like uh, he's the guy who respects the game um, and and all of that stuff. It's funny because like I was watching this and, and watching Ed Norton's character, and I don't know if you remember this, but like recently, I want to say this was last year, there was this whole cheating scandal, uh, you know, with online poker, where there okay. was these like Twitch streamed poker games, and I think there was this one guy, uh, because uh, the games were broadcast 
uh, but on delay, he was somehow able to get like a signal from like the broadcast crew who would like send him a signal or something like that. And he was able to win like 95% of his hands and basically like fold every hand uh, where he had like the second best hand. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but I'm always fascinated by like that side of poker too. Like people trying to find not just an edge, but like an illegal edge. No, I mean, like me, I, I again, like I find myself more akin to Matt Damon's character than Edward Norton. So um, like I hate, I hate seeing that part of it. And I'm not going to lie. Like uh, he gets what's coming to him in this movie. And I'll be honest, I, you're, this is what I mean. It's so satisfying. I'm not going to like, I don't know about you, but like I literally was satisfied at how his character's pretty much last scene ended up. Like he deserved everything he got. You know what I mean? Oh, he definitely deserved everything that was coming to him. And I definitely don't condone what he did, but I love reading a good controversy. And like <laughs> Ed Norton's character, Worm, he basically like spends the whole movie just running up debts yeah, everywhere and just running up debts on account of Mike without telling him. And I think at one point, because he's trying to pay off this debt uh, that this character, Grandma, has taken, um, you know, because he has like multiple debts and they're consolidated. Um, and then this guy, Grandma, is is coming to collect, and he's backed by KGB. I think he owes at one point like 25K with juice, um, and he's still running around, running these scams, and, and never really learns his lesson. And like he keeps joining these games when Mike is playing that Mike doesn't want him involved in. Um, but yeah, no, he definitely gets uh, what's coming to him. Um, what did you think about Mike uh, walking away from the game um, and his whole conflict um, you know, with his girlfriend, Joe? And, you know, struggling with balancing that, his career, and actually playing poker again. I mean, it's tough to watch anybody go through, like, legit rock bottom, right? And I think, uh, you know, if you kind of look at your own life, like, you never want to see yourself put, uh, be put in that position. I think what makes it really tough to watch as an audience um, audience member is he, he made the choice. You know what I mean? And you hate, like, and you know, in our lives, we we all take certain risks. Like, we calculate risks, what's a good opportunity, what's not. And I think anybody can relate to somebody taking a risk that they think is a good decision and then watching it all just burn down. And, like, that's tough. Nobody wants to see that happen in anybody's life. You don't want to wish that upon anybody else either, right? So um, to watch him go through that and to know he still has his other kind of more legit life that he's trying to lead, I get, I get it. You can see the kind of the crossroads that he's forced to figure out. And that's why he goes back to Kanish, takes the truck, you know, tries to do things more legit because in his legit life, he actually is very successful as well. So it's not like he has no choice. He has to play poker. So um, it's tough to watch him throw it all away by, you know, going in with those three stacks. <laughs> yeah he should have uh he should have just called on the river but that i guess would have made a terrible movie um, exactly he, yeah, he yeah. just leaves the most lukewarm scene possible <laughs> he just loses half his bankroll but doesn't really learn a lesson yeah uh, exactly. and then just keeps yes. playing so yeah. at one point they agree that they're gonna pl- they're gonna pay uh the debt the fifteen thousand dollars in five days and uh mike and worm decide they're just gonna run games around the city even though they only have $1,200 combined. So they have to turn that into 15K. Uh, you know, Mike has a really successful uh, 64-hour session uh, where he makes $7,000. First of all, um, 
64 hours, uh, which I assume was in a row. What's the longest you've played consecutively? Oh, I don't like you put. Oh, god damn it. Okay, so I'll answer truthfully. Um, I've seen more than my fair share of sunrises. That uh, is kind of shameful to say out loud, but um, the longest like seated session without actually going and doing something else is probably like 14 hours. Yeah, so I think I beat you on that. I've okay, definitely good, had good. a 24 hours before, oh, yeah, but that wild, included man. a break to to go to the bank to take out my entire bankroll. Um, oh, you're, no, you're the worst. The bankroll. You're the yeah, worst, no, I've, man. I've told this story many times. I missed Mother's Day once because I was gambling oh, no! at Fort Oh, uh, you terrible yeah. son, man. <laughs> I know. You keep talking about, no, I, I stopped going to the casino after that. That was like 15 years ago. Oh, that's and a good wake-up call, man. That's a good. I've been a call. good son since. Yeah, that's my Rounders movie. Like, if they <laughs> made a Rounders movie, that that would be the one. <laughs> uh, yep, yep. That 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 takes the cake, man. That's a rough one. I'm lucky I've never pulled some shit like that. No, but even like 14 hours. The thing with poker, like it just, it takes so much mental energy, right? Like you get tired. I get tired after like two hours. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like, I don't know what your reasons were for doing 24 hours, like whether you're trying to claw back or not. But for me, my reason was like pretty like I like I know I played enough to know like my marginal, like diminishing marginal returns after whatever number of hours. Like I'm just exhausted. I'm impatient and all that. But what happened to me that night was they opened up a 510 game and everyone who was in there that's like a pro knew that there were these two really bad fish players that showed up to be on that table so all the sharks just got up off the two five one two whatever it was and just jumped on this table waiting for their turn at that guy and i was one of them too i did the exact same thing so i was for those last whatever hours of that session i was literally just waiting for my one hand to just scoop off of that guy and um it didn't even happen, which was the worst part. So it was just like the biggest waste of time ever, right? Um, but yeah, terrible reasons, man. Usually these long sessions, they never have a happy ending. Um, and, you know, I try to justify it by that story, but clearly I probably should have just left like many hours before. <laughs> Listen, we're all better for it now. Uh, we've learned our life lessons um, and, and we can just uh, reminisce and laugh about it. It definitely was a clawback situation for me. Uh, I think I did make my money back and then, I uh, stupidly threw away a little bit of it at blackjack just because I love playing blackjack. Um, that's another, uh, you know, I don't want to make everything Asian, but that's another Asian trait. <laughs> just yeah, man. blowing a little money at blackjack. <laughs> 100%. I got you, man. Um, I do the same. You know me. Yeah. So, yeah. So he makes $7,000 in a 64-hour session. They drive like five hours to this like Binghamton game and Mike is crushing it. And Worm, against Mike McDermott's request, gets himself into this game. And this is where he gets caught dealing from the bottom of the deck. And they both get beat up, kicked out of the game. All their money is taken. And I think Worm has like $300 left in his boot. Um, and at this point, they're running out of time to pay the debt back. And this is the big scene where uh, Mike goes to see Kanish to ask for the money. And, you know, Mike tells his whole story because earlier in the movie he's watching this uh scene from the 88 world series of poker when johnny chan beats uh eric seidel uh mm-hmm. shout outs johnny chan by the way i kind of forgot about of him um and kanish and and he tells a story about how he played johnny chan at the casino once 
um, <laughs> where he sat down and like it was a game like you mentioned earlier as an example where I think the stakes were too high for his bankroll. Yep. Um, but he just played tight for an hour and you know on a hand where he had nothing, he like re-raised Johnny Chan like twice and made him muck his hand. And that's like his whole origin story of why he believes that he can be like the best poker player. And I love how Kanish is just like, no, I'm not giving you the money and also fuck your dreams. Uh, <laughs> it's basically what happened. Like, is, don't you think that's an accurate description of that scene? Yeah, because he's he's literally a grinder, right? So like, his mentality about it is exactly the opposite. He'll never play beyond his bankroll. He'll never play beyond his threshold. Whereas Mike is literally doing the exact opposite thing that a grinder would do. Yeah, who do you think is more reckless? Mike McDermott? Or uh, Adam Sandler's character, Howard Ratner from Uncut Gems? Uh, I mean, they both, they were, like, Adam Sandler had an edge. Like, he had some inside info he thought he had, right? So that was, that was, I, I don't know. You know what? That's a tough one, man. I, I My gut is to say Adam Sandler because he is betting on something he doesn't have control over. Whereas Mike kind of has a little bit of control. But, um, okay, fine. Yeah, I'll go with Adam Sandler. What's your pick, man? Yeah, I think it's Sandler for sure. Because first of all, I think he was playing with way higher stakes. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. You know, including his own life. And <laughs> exactly. I think I think the minute you pawn uh, Kevin Garnett's championship ring off, um, that just shows that you're like a deeper level of degen uh, than anyone else. But I don't know. Because, I mean, we'll talk about this. I mean, the, the movie leaves... Uh, the ending is pretty open-ended. Yep. And I'm actually surprised they never did a sequel. Um, you know, probably because the movie wasn't very popular at the time. And, you know, Matt Damon and Ed Norton, they were already big stars at the time, but they became like huge stars, um, you know, uh, you know, a few years later. So maybe that's why. But anyways, so Kanish is like, fuck your dreams. And, you know, that's where Martin Landau's character, uh, Petrovsky, uh, meets up with Mike McDermott. And, you know, they have this really heartwarming chat. And so he's the one who stakes him and so mike goes back for his rematch with kgb and they're gonna play heads up 20 50 blinds and they're not stopping until one of them has all the money so we have a few hands here um i think the first hand is mike has pocket kings and he pre-flop raises a thousand dollars KGB re-raises 5,000, and then Mike just goes all in. And you see KGB pick up his Oreo. He splits it, um, doesn't eat it, which is his tell that he doesn't have a good hand, and he folds. And to be honest, I feel like that just sent KGB on tilt, like, right away. Yeah, oh, no doubt, man. Like, I mean, I think what they had, is it 10K they sat at the table to start? I think so, yeah. Yeah, how do you lose half your stack in a heads-up game and expect, like, you're three to, you're down three to one, right? So it's there's no chance. There's no chance. It uh, it was a good reveal, though. I liked uh, I remember when I first watched that scene with the Oreos. Um, I had no idea it was significant until that scene. Right. Like, it shows up in previous scenes. Um, and I mean, now you look at it like, ha 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 Oreos. But the first time I watched it. Yeah, I remember having this like, oh no, he's got him. Oh, he's this is it. This is it, man. It's over. Mikey, Mikey's going to the World Series of Poker, man. It's coming. And uh, I thought they actually executed that scene pretty well. It was nicely done. Yeah, you know, to be honest, I think the very first time I watched it, because they don't explicitly explain what the tell is. 
they yeah. kind of leave it for you to figure it out um, that, you know, when he has a good hand, he actually eats the Oreo after he splits it. The first time I watched it, like, you know, whatever year it was, 99, 2000, like, I didn't even pick up on that. And I was like, mm. oh, shit, I, I guess that means I'm a fucking shitty poker player. <laughs> Uh, and maybe that just made me retire. Um, but so we flash forward after that one hand and, you know, we get to kind of like the final hand of at least the first part of their match. Um, you know, Mike wins another hand, takes, you know, wins KGB's chips, um, all of his chips. And KGB is all pissy and whiny. And at this point, this is where he turns into just a cartoon character to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Mike's made back uh, enough to pay off his debt and, and grandma's there to collect and, you know, Mike walks away, you know, he, he he's able to pay off his debt and still have some money to pocket himself. But KGB is just talking crazy shit at this point, um, which, again, toxic masculinity. Um, so, you know, it does get to McDermott and he sits back down and they double the blinds um, and they keep going. And there's this one huge hand where KGB now has a huge stack. Uh, the flop is ace three five. It's a rainbow flop. And. KGB cracks open his Oreo. This is where he cracks open and eats it. And this is when it hits Mike. uh, And he spots the tell. And he folds uh, top two pair. uh, And he he folds it face up to show KGB that this is what he's letting go. A boss Uh, move. Yeah, and calls KGB on having flopped a straight with uh, deuce four. And this sends KGB on like a wild, like, like on a turbo tilt. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that's yeah, that's the cartoon aspect of KGB where it just all kind of melts down, right? Um, yo, if that happened to me in real life and I was KGB, I would just start blasting at pots, right? Like I would go nuts for sure. If if that ever happens to you in real life, like just like KGB, I you'd go insane as well, hundred percent. No, in real life, what would happen is I would fold my top two pair face up. And KGB would show me that he had absolutely nothing. And I made this completely <laughs> incorrect read. <laughs> Idiot. Good for you, man. Yeah. Once again, I think that's how rounders uh, should have ended. Uh, just KGB being like, no, you actually made the wrong read. There's nothing. Uh, the Orioles actually mean nothing. Um, so we get to the final hand. And at this point, uh, KGB, as we've established, is on a crazy tilt. And Mike has uh, eight nine suited uh, spades, and the flop is six seven ten. So he flops the straight, and I want to say I believe this was kind of a recreation of that Johnny Chan, Eric Seidel hand mm-hmm. that he was watching earlier because they do make a reference to it. Uh, so KGB bets two thousand, and Mike calls and says, you know, I think you're on a draw. Um, KGB is just losing his shit at this point. The turn is is a two of clubs that does nothing. For anybody, and KGB just keeps splashing more chips. Um, he says he's going to bet the pot. Uh, Mike calls, and the river is the ace of spades. And then KGB goes all in, and Mike calls. Yeah, he's got the straight. He wins it all. Um, everybody is pissed at him, and you know Mike walks away with all the money. He turned his ten grand into sixty, and I think after he paid everything back, he still had three stacks of high society with him, mm-hmm. just like he did at the beginning of the movie. Uh, first of all, what did you think about that hand? Because, I mean, I guess it was a pretty straightforward hand. KGB was already on tilt. Um, you know, he was going to give away his money eventually. We never find out what KGB's hand was. And online speculation is that he had pocket aces and made a set of aces on the river. Yeah, I mean, that's plausible. Um, I mean, the the way they made that scene, 
uh, looked to be is that he was just trying to like bully his way out of that like out of that hand um i mean there are a lot of outcomes he could have had like i remember thinking back he could have easily had like he could have had a set already he could have had pocket sixes pocket sevens pocket tens um and that would be a justified play uh, at that point he probably should think he's huge especially in a heads up game um but I don't know, man. At what point do you actually really think he has it? Like the 8-9 there? It's such a low probability kind of scenario. I, I actually don't even give KGB too much shit for how he played that hand. Like, it's pretty unlikely that Mikey would have 8-9 right in that spot. Yeah, and, you know, um, so Mike gets uh, his money back. He mends fences uh, with Joe. Um, you know, they have this one final scene, and then he hops in the cab and he is going to Vegas, and that's where the movie ends. So because there was no sequel, what do you think ends up happening to Mike McDermott? He uh, He's actually Daniel Negreanu. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually Daniel Negreanu's life story, man, except Toronto version? I don't know. I'm sure in in the context of the Rounders universe, he ends up being. He ends up being one of the other ringers that's out there. Um, with all the other goons in Vegas, man, hitting up nightclubs and uh, playing at the poker tables until like seven a.m. in the morning. Yeah, it's probably him. Yeah, they need a ra- they need a rounders too, uh, with me and you in it. Ah, perfect, um, perfect. Yeah, man, we can be the think, fish. We can be the fish at the table, man. Just constantly yeah. getting dumped on. I, I think it'd be cool actually if they did an Asian remake, but Mike McDermott <laughs> is in it. Like he's the villain just because he's white. Oh um, my god. <laughs> Or they could do like a Rounders uh, Uncut Gems crossover. Mm, uh, that'd be you know, nice. This would, ha- this would have to be like obviously a prequel uh, because rest in peace, Howard Ratner. Once again, yeah. if you haven't watched Uncut Gems, here's a spoiler for you. Um, so a few more fun facts about the movie. So Matt Damon and Ed Norton actually played um, at the World Series of Poker in 98. And um, I believe they were both knocked out, or at least Matt Damon had pocket kings and was knocked out by Doyle Brunson, who had pocket aces. Um, So that's actually a kind of a neat story. And you mentioned Chris Moneymaker, who won, who was an amateur, who won the 2003 World Series of Poker. Uh, That should have been Phil Ivey's win, man. Um, And he credited (laughs) a rounders with leading him to pick up Hold'em. And, you know, a lot of the other uh, modern pro players, too, uh, including Daniel Negreanu, who you referenced, um, you know, have talked about the influence of that cult classic. And lastly, uh, Johnny Chan, who uh, is in this movie, uh, he talked about uh, the movie in the Ringer's oral history of Rounders. And he said, quote, some producer asked me to sign a release to release the footage of the World Series of Poker when I beat Eric Seidel in 1988. I said, sign a release. What's going on? And he told me about this Rounders movie. And I said, who are the actors going to be? And the producer said, Matt Damon and Ed Norton. And I said, great. Um, So Johnny Chan, uh, established clout chaser. Um, Anything (laughs) else you want to add about this movie, Wes? Uh, Honestly, you know, you covered it. Yeah, you covered it all. I don't got any good gems to really add there. I, I agree. I bet of all the modern day poker players that, are out there now everybody attributes this movie as probably what kind of made it all mainstream right 
Um, like the you know gambling, gambling in general, man, there's like a very seedy undertone to it, right? You don't you don't really feel good talking about these things out loud. And I think what Rounders did was it just made it a little bit more mainstream, and it added some kind of allure to it that everybody felt like, oh man, like you know, this is actually not the the most like seedy thing that we can possibly do. Sure, you know, there's people doing it. It's on TV. Why not? Yeah. So three stars for this movie so first of all i'm going to give the gerald henderson award uh, which is for like the uh, i'm going to give the gerald henderson award to abe petrosky um, because he he plays a huge role i'm going to give the patrick patterson award to uh kgb okay um, okay because i feel like he came in as like a a really uh intimidating villain and and like we mentioned just ended up being a joke by the end um (laughs) so Three stars for me, and you know you can give me your input uh, on the order because I know you really enjoyed uh, Ed Norton's performance. Um, I think I'm going to give it to uh, Mike McDermott, uh, Worm, and Joey Kanish. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd go my order like I'd go Ed Norton. Uh, I actually really like Kanish. I thought Kanish was good. I'll give him a second star, and then I'll give Abe a star, even though he doesn't have like a huge <laughs> role. But I, I like. I like, uh, I told you already, I like his influence in this whole movie. Yeah, so if anybody wants to hit up Wes, um, if you're a life coach, uh, hit him up. Looks like a good scam opportunity, yeah, to please be honest. Do. Please uh, do, thank just, you. You know, this man's just waiting to blow his bankroll uh, for some motivational quotes. Um, uh, I got you on that if you need it, actually. Okay. Uh, well, well Wes, you. listen, man, it was a pleasure to do this with you. Uh, super fun, uh, always fun to uh, relive the fact that we both used to be uh, degenerates, uh, you know, key word there is used to be, Thank you. um, you know, this is, this is all in the past now. Um, you know, we're all living much, uh, cleaner, uh, lives and, and not losing our bankrolls and playing poker for 24 hours at a time. Uh, Westman, this was super fun. Thanks for coming on. 